As Gen AI reshapes industries, understanding and leveraging its capabilities is no longer an option, it's a necessity. And that's exactly why at Hatchworks, we developed our Gen AI Innovation Workshop. In this workshop, we immerse you into a full day of learning, hands-on ideation, and building. We hit foundational concepts and show you how they relate to your domain. Then we develop actual use cases for your business and your industry. And we even build a custom GPT based on the use cases we define. Check out the link in the show notes or visit hatchworks.com to get started today. Welcome to Built Right, a podcast by Hatchworks where we help you learn to build the right digital product the right way. In each episode, we'll deconstruct the layers of successful product development, break down popular trends, and offer real advice to help make sure your product is built right. We may not have all the answers, but we've built a lot of digital products across a lot of industries, and we've seen a thing or two. Let's get into it. Welcome, Built Right listeners. We have a special one for you today. Our guest is a PhD data scientist, and he's going to help us make sense of generative AI and how it all works. And our guest today is Nick Vasiloglo. Uh, and Nick, I'm probably butchering the name, Nick the Greek, I think is uh, what you also referred, referred to, uh, to you as. And he is the VP of Research ML at Relational AI. Like I said, master's and PhD in electrical and com- computer engineering here from uh, Georgia Tech and has founded several companies, has worked at companies like Logibox, Google, Semantic, and even helped design some of Georgia Tech's executive education programs on leveraging the power of data. But welcome to the show, Nick. Nice to to meet you, Matt. Uh, Thanks for hosting me. Yeah, excited to have you on. And relational AI, for those that don't know, is the world's fastest, most scalable, expressive relational knowledge graph management system combining learning and reasoning. And for those of you thinking, what the heck is a knowledge graph? We will get into that. Plus, we'll get into how generative AI is actually actually works, as told by a real PhD data scientist uh, who's been doing this stuff way before ChatGPT was even a, a thought in somebody's mind. Uh, plus, stick around. We got Nick's take on what are going to be the most interesting use cases with generative AI in the future. And he he's saving these. I haven't heard these either, so I'll hear them for the first time. So really excited to to get into these. Uh, but Nick, let's start here. What What is the difference between, we hear generative AI, it's the hot topic right now, but generative AI and just regular AI, like what is the difference? What makes generative AI special and different? <laughs> it's a very interesting question. Um, you know, for many years, uh, the emphasis, the, the way that we were separating, you know, what do you call it, machine learning on AI was, on the depth of the models. Like when I started my PhD, we were working on something that we would call like shallow models. Basically, you can think about it looking at some statistics. You know, the decision tree was the the, the state of the art, which meant, okay, I have like this feature. If it, is it greater than this value, then I have to check the other feature and the other feature and come up with a decision. That's something that everyone can understand. Then Deep learning was the next revolution somewhere in the 2010s it started. And it started doing, you know, more, let's say, complicated stuff that, I mean, people are still trying to find out why it's working. They cannot understand exactly the math around it. 
And then the next evolution was, so we had these models that they were pretty powerful, but uh, we didn't know how to scale them. We didn't know how far they can go. And uh, and that was the revolution that basically OpenAI, OpenAI brought, that they realized that um, you can take this new cool thing called the transformer, where you can feed it with a lot of data and do this cool thing where you are trying to predict the next word and um, and basically come up with what we have right now. It took several years and several iterations. Um, but uh, I think the, the difference between what we used to call AI and what we call AI right now is the focus on the language. I mean, if you, if you, if you had read about Somsky and others, a lot of people consider that the, intel- the human intelligence uh, uh, has to do with our ability to, you know, to form uh, languages and communicate. I mean, that you might have heard that. You might remember as a student what makes humans different than other animals. Uh, the human brain is the ability to, to form uh, uh, um, languages. Um, and, uh, and I think the focus on that um, made the big difference in, in, in what we have right now. The previous was more like a decision system. Now we're focusing more on the reasoning side. So I would say this is the shift that we see. And that's, I think, part of the interesting aspect of it is, you know, in the past, it's like the models, they were trained for very specific tasks in a lot of ways. And now you have this concept of these uh, foundation models, which that's, you know, what a lot of the large language models are built on. But now, like to your point, it's it's almost kind of like getting to where how the human brain works, and it can tackle these disparate types of ideas and solutions and things like that. But this concept of like a foundation model, what what is that? How does that start to play into like these concepts of like large language models, LLMs that we we hear so much about? So let me clear that up first. You know the the foundation models and the language models are, are basically the same thing. It's you know sometimes. The, the, it was the foundational models were, were, the term was introduced by some Stanford professors. Uh, um, they were trying to, you know, kind of, uh, like it, it happens a lot in science. You build something for something specific and then you realize that it applies to a much broader, uh, you know, class of problems. And I think that was the, the effort that, that, that was the, the, the rationale be- behind renaming language models as foundational models because they can do the same thing with uh, other types of, of data, not just like uh, uh, text. Okay, so you can do use that for, for proteins, you can use basically for whatever it represents a sequence. Okay, so, um, you know, as I said, in the past, a lot of effort was... Um, was put on collecting labels and do what we call supervised learning. Uh, the paradigm shift here was in, in what we call self-supervised learning. That was a big, big um, plus, something that, that brought us here. Okay, that, this idea that, you know, just take a corpus of text and try to predict the next word. And if you're trying to predict the next word, you, word you're basically going to uh, to find out, uh, you know, the, the underlying knowledge um, and ingest it in a way that you can make it useful. Um, of course, that's that's what brought us up to, to 2015, 
2020. That was the GPT-3, okay, where we scaled. But there was another leap, the chat GPT, that in the end, it did require some some labeling because you had like the human in the loop. Okay, let's, I don't know. It's not exactly labeling, but you can think about it a bit as labeling because we have a human giving feedback. Uh, and, um, and then, you know, that brought us to, 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 uh, to chat GPT. Now, um, the heart of language models or foundational models is something called, uh, the transformer. It was invented in 2017 by Google, actually. It was an interesting race. OpenAI had, uh, there was like a small feud between OpenAI and Google. Um, so OpenAI came with a model, a lang- all of them were language models. Everybody was trying to, to, to solve the same problem. Uh, they, they came up with something called Elmo and, uh, Google came back with, uh, with Bert from the cartoon, from the, from the Muppet show, I think. <laughs> And, uh, and then, uh, so Bert was based on the transformer. Okay. Then OpenAI, um, uh, realized that actually Bert is better. Okay. That's an interesting lesson. They didn't really stick. Oh, this is our technology. We'll invest in that. They saw that, uh, that, uh, the transformer was a better architecture, but then they took Bert and they actually cut it in half. <laughs> okay. And, uh, and they, they picked, actually, let me put it that way, that they invented, the Google invented the transformer, which had an encoder, a decoder, and they picked, BERT was based on the encoder architecture. They took that half, but then OpenAI came and picked, no, we're going to work on the other half, which is the decoder, <laughs> predictive text. And, uh, you know, they spent three years. Uh, they did see that the more data you pour, the better it becomes. Okay, so they that was their bet. And uh, they ended up with GPT-3, GPT-2 and 3, GPT-1 to 3, the, the sequence 3.5 and 4 later on as GPT. Um, and it was kind of like an interesting race where, you know, things basically started from Google, but uh, OpenAI ended up being the leader over there. And they built every, everything they built was... Open source, right? Everything Google built, so they were able to. You know, everything is actually open source. I think up to GPT, even GPT three, there was it was a published paper. Uh, it's you know, it's very hard if you believe that you're going to get a secret source that nobody else knows. Uh, I never seen that playing in machine learning. Okay, because scientists want to publish, they want to to share knowledge. I think as the models started to become bigger and bigger, they didn't, uh, you know, with GPT-3, I don't think they ever opened the whole model, the actual model, but they gave enough information about how to train it. You know, there's always some tricks that, uh, you know, over time, even if somebody doesn't tell you as you're experimenting, you're going to, you know, they're going to come become public. Okay, so... Um, yeah, that, that was never the issue. I don't think, uh, yeah, they are a little bit cryptic about after 3.5 and such details. But, uh, in my opinion, the, the, the secret source over there is not exactly on the model, but it's on how you scale the serving of the model, which we're going to talk about that later. This is the, the secret weapon of open AI, not necessarily the, the architecture, but, uh, you know, the engineering behind that. Nice. Yeah, let's let's keep going on the the transformer side because like getting under how these you know GPTs work. Basically, you mentioned that it's serving up 
the next word, the next word. It's not looking at it like a, a whole entire sentence, right? It's these, this concept of tokens. But how is it like actually thinking through that and structure of language and something you think a computer wouldn't be able to do, it's now doing very well? Yes. First of all, it's always this, as I said, the transformer has this encoder, decoder architecture, which means that there's one part that looks into two directions back and forth, like as it's processing, it looks both ways, like this token, uh, you know, is affected by the other tokens, but this token in the middle is, is also affected by the ones before and after them, what it's going to be. So that's like the encoded, that's the encoded, the decoded architecture, architecture, you're only looking back because you're not looking in the future. Okay. Uh, we, we can, we can talk more in detail. And there's a lot of papers and a lot of tutorials that they actually explain that. It's not, it's not always easy to explain it, uh, without graphics here. But the, the key thing over here is that, um, you know, let, let me go a little bit back. The first revolution actually came by Google was Word, Word to Vec, where they realized that, um, you know, if you give me a word and I, and I try to predict that word by looking five words behind me and five words after me. Okay. That was a simple thing, like a small window. And I tried to create a vector representation. They realized that, you know, I can take words, make them as something links continuous vectors, put them in space, draw them in space. And I would realize that, you know, that representation would bring words that are semantically similar together. Okay. And there was this other thing that if I, you know, if Paris is here and France is here and London is here, then I can take the same vector, put it here. I can find, you know, England. So they realized, for example, that if I place all the capitals and all the, uh, all the, uh, all the countries, I can just take the vector that connects the first and the other and it's translated to the next one and it's gonna. So, or if I take, the different the distance of the vector between um man and a woman take that then take the word king add that to the king it's going to take me to the queen so basically people started realizing with a simple word to vec that um you can take words represent them as vectors let's think about two dimensional vectors like in on the plane but it's not two it's like 512 dimensions. It doesn't really matter. The concept is the same. That the, the, the distances in space, the way that they're placed in space, uh, has, <coughs> sorry, semantic meaning. Now, the next problem was, this is great, but we do know that words actually change meaning based on their context. Okay. So. What's an example there? Yeah. So for example, an example would be, uh, um, you know, when you say, uh, uh, you know, when you say flower, well, let's, let's speak up now. I'm a little bit stuck, but, um, you had one about boiling the, uh, uh, a person's boiling a what? And then if it was like an engineer, it had different context. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You can boil an egg or, you know, an engineer is boiling, I don't know, uh, uh, a substance, but it could be, you or know, like, the ocean. They're trying to boil the ocean. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so when you say, for example, the bed, uh, uh, it can be, you know, something different when you talk about, uh, you know, a house 
a bedroom. But if you talk about geology, it means something completely different. Okay. So what they realized was that um, that vector that represents the word shouldn't be universal. Okay. Uh, it should really depend on the surrounding words. Okay. So this vector representation, when the surrounding words are this one, it has to be this, and it also have different relationships. Okay. And, uh, um, and it should be different when it's around different words. And that was, that was basically Elmo, Elmo. That was this, this idea. It's called contextual embedding. So this vector representation, like this, they say these two dimensional representations called an embedding. So this is, this was actually one of the biggest revolution of, of, of deep learning that we're taking discrete, uh, uh, entities and we could place them. Uh, in space as a continuous vector. So we'll take something that was discrete and putting on a medium that it's continuous, okay? Continuous and multidimensional. So the first idea of the, before the transformer, Elmo, which is an aerial version of a transformer, the first idea was that, ah, okay, if I see a text, I will be placing these words, you know, on different places in space based on what it's around them. Okay. And, um, and the next thing that, uh, so basically what happens is you are taking the words on the first level. You, you look left and right and you create, you know, embeddings, you know, you create, you put them in space. Then you take that and you apply that again and again. So the transformer actually starts in levels, you know, one level after level, second level. It has multiple, I don't know exactly the numbers, but it has different levels. So you can think about that as basically a rewriting. Okay. So that's why it's called transformer. So you have a sequence of words and you start, you know, rewriting to something else, something else. That else, you know, so when people actually people have done this experiment, they're taking the, the transformer. And they decompose it and they see what are these things that you, you know, the transformer does in, in different levels. And they've actually realized that it starts inventing grammatical rules. It starts like identifying what is the, the, the subject, what is the object, what is the verb. Okay. It starts identifying that something is an adjective or not an adjective. Um, it starts, you know, taking, you know, words and converting them to something which is a synonym, maybe, you know, something else. And that's how the reasoning starts. Like, I can give you, if I give you uh, a sequence of words, you know, um, Nick, uh, I don't know, lives in Atlanta, you know, it can, it knows that uh, Nick, I don't know, is Greek, okay? So it can say the Greek lives in Atlanta, and that can affect the fact that, you know, and then you can say, he goes to the store to buy, and because now you know that he's Greek, he lives in Atlanta, you say feta cheese, for example, okay? Because now he starts, he st you know, the transformer starts taking different paths, like it starts exploring, you know, what are synonyms, and you know, if he lives, it means he goes to the store, you know, he goes to the supermarket, if he lives there, so it starts, all this information is ingested in the transformer after seeing, you know, endless pages of text and, you know, where basically there's their reasoning paths. Like it does this 
on your own. Of course, because there's so many reasoning paths that can happen, sometimes it can hallucinate. Okay, so I can say Nick Thais, uh, I don't know, Suvlaki, <laughs> because he, Greeks, he is Greek, which is possible, but there might be somewhere else some other information that says Nick hates Suvlaki and, you know, the language model doesn't, but it's a probable event since, you know, Nick is Greek. Anyway, I'm just giving a simple example over there, but that's kind of like the power of the transformer that at every stage, it starts rewriting things again and again and again, and it explores possible, very possible, uh, very likely paths, you know, highly likely. And correct paths. me if I'm wrong, what, what you're talking about here is this kind of the, the difference in evolution from structured data to unstructured data. Because in the past, we had very like defined tables, columns, associations to things. Is this kind of getting to that concept of unstructured data where it's like the vectors and well, the problem with with the structure that with the systems before that everything was like it was very discreet, and unless you had seen before the word Nick, okay, followed by that exact word, um, it was you know if you think about think about all the variations like Nick spelled with K, Nikolaos, uh, Nick Vasiloglu, I don't know, think about it, all these things because now they're in a continuous space, okay, that's what makes the the difference. It's possible for the, the system to, to create an internal rule, if you want, or internal path about things that they are kind of similar. Okay. So it doesn't have to be Nick. It could be Vasiloglu instead of Nick, or it could be the guy who lives at, uh, I don't know, say my address, you know, it's the same thing. So all, because all these things, <laughs> I think it's public. You can find it <laughs> because. All these things that they're semantically equivalent, and before you had to express them in, I don't know, a hundred different discrete things, and you had to see them exactly in that order in order to find a, a common path. It says, okay, this class of entities that they can be represented with this vector, they are very close, can be followed by this class of entities that can all compress them in, you know, a, a, a constellation of vectors, it can lead me to something else, you know, to... That's why you see the language model when when you when you go to OpenAI and you say regenerate. What it does, it can generate the same thing, the same reasoning path, by using a little bit different words or you know words that are semantically equivalent. Okay, and now the thing is that it can do that in this incredible memory of like I don't know up to thirty two thousand tokens. So even if you know you're saying that. You know, Nick is going to buy something from the store and it will predict that it's feta. It's because it has seen, you know, 10,000 tokens before that, you know, Nick is Greek. Okay. Uh, he's hungry. I don't know. He's having a, uh, I don't know, a dinner party and, and get you over there. Okay. So because when it was trained, it has seen sequences that in the span of 10, 20,000 tokens, you know, Nick associated with party, food, uh, restaurant, you know, leads you to FETA. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And when you say a token, that's basically either a word or a couple characters, some like small variation that it's breaking it down into. Is that? A token is basically a trick. You know, we could have used, it's a, like, you know, the thing, all these models have about, like, I don't know, 30,000 tokens. Uh, so they realize that we can break all possible, like, you know, with 30,000 tokens, you can, I mean, you, you can use character level. Okay. Every word can be decomposed to, to characters. 
but uh, that would have made um, that would have made you know the the language model extremely big and inefficient. So it's like a trick because we we kind of like trying to find out. Uh, it's a compression that we're doing. We could have gone with syllables because syllables are also finite and make all the words. Now we said, you know, look, because there are some combinations of, of letters that they are so frequent, we don't really need to decompose them all the time. We know exactly what they what they mean. So it was a clever engineering trick. To, it has to do with the language. It's related to the language. It was like a statistical, a better statistical analysis of the um uh, of, of the language. I, I mean, put, to put it that way, if we were inventing a language from scratch, um, we would start with tokens, you know, and maybe not uh, necessarily letters. You know? oh, that's interesting. A, and so we've talked a lot so far about language as the, the thing at play here, but like you can use this generative AI and all this new technology and advancements with different modalities like images, whether you're generating images or whether you're uh, understanding what an image looks like and voices, all kinds of different things at play here. How does that work different when now language isn't necessarily the output? Is it looking at the the pixels in a way and then the association? There is there? a visual language over there. You know, there's the visual transformer, which tries to predict blocks of image. There's also the diffusion models, that, which is something completely different. Um, uh, but uh, so, for example, diffusion models, we see them only in images. We don't see them in, in text that much. Uh, Although there, there's been some efforts, but uh, the transformer, it turns out that it, it behaves, behaves equally well for, for, for images. But, you know, the, where you, when you talk about a token in, in, in vision, that's kind of like a, a block of, you know, of pixels. I don't know, 16 by 16, 32 by 32. Um, you know, this is something we knew from before, like even in the days of image compression, they used, you know, they could take parts of the image and compress. You know, block by block. Um, but um, I want to I want to uh, make something clear for your for your audience that uh, language is a way of expressing knowledge, but it's not knowledge. Okay, the fact that I can come and tell you something, you know, I can go and and read quantum mechanics. I can take a passage. I can I can recite it for you. It doesn't mean that I know what I'm <laughs> what I'm saying, okay, and uh, and that's where the hallucinations are coming into play. So we don't really have direct access to knowledge, okay. It's a language model; it's not a knowledge model, okay. So and there's been some effort right now to do the same thing. Like you know, if we could start, if there was a universal knowledge graph, okay that I could take and say that from this token of knowledge, I can go to that token of knowledge through that relation and do reasoning. Maybe we could train uh, a knowledge model, let's call it, or a foundational model, that we know that whatever it says, it's it's accurate and, and, and correct. But a language is a possible path over knowledge. It doesn't mean that it's correct. Okay, so so it doesn't have to do that. Like, so language models are always going to hallucinate and make mistakes, not because there's uh, there's there are errors into what they were being training for. You know, the the data sets are pretty well curated. <coughs> oh, 
obviously they will contain misinformation and errors, but the reason of hallucination is not really uh, the, the the errors in the in the raw text, but it's on the fact that this is a possible expression. You know, and the same way that uh, uh, you know, like you are a fiction uh, writer, author, and you can write. Like you see things in life and you write a different version. Like take one of my favorites, like Da Vinci Code. Okay. Like when you read, that's what I like about Dan Brown or take about Game of Thrones, for example. If you think about Game of Thrones, it's, uh, uh, it's, it has elements of truth from the human history. You can see the, 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 let's talk about it because that's probably what most of the people know. You know, it's like the Persian Empire or you can see, you know, the, the English history or the Greek. Or there's some of them, like you can see elements of that in a completely fictional way. So that's, in my opinion, Game of Thrones was the first generative model, you know, uh, George Martin. <laughs> Great. Uh, okay, so it could generate something like that, which is completely, it looks, you know, modular the dragons. It could look real, <laughs> okay, uh, realistic, but it's, it's wrong. The same thing with Dan Brown, you know, Da Vinci Code. It looks like, a real, it could have been a real story about, uh, uh, what happened after, you know, uh, Jesus was crucified in the story. It could have been, but, uh, we don't have evidence that it is. So some people follow conspiracy theories. They think that Dan Brown is the real story, but that's what I'm saying. So, um, yes, it's a possible, it's a possible truth. Do, do you think we ever get to that? ability where it is true knowledge you, you get into this concept of like you know your agi and all that type of stuff do you ever think we get to that level of advancement or you know i i always go back to like how the human brain works and like are we do we have true knowledge to an extent or are we just doing the same kind of computational thing in our head with probability of what's you know you know one of the things that we know is that the transform architecture and the language model is not how the brain works yeah, this is an engineering. Ex it's not. It's not how the brain works. No, no, no. There are some commonalities, and there are some kind of like analogies. But I think it's wrong to uh, to think about or to trying to you know like when you're working with uh, with with language models and you're trying to tune them or you're trying to explain or debug them <laughs> to have in your mind how the the brain works. Okay, don't do that. If you are a prompt engineer, if you're trying to build a model, <laughs> try to understand how the system is built and and, and use that knowledge. Don't use the, the you know cognitive uh, uh, neurology here. Um, now, unfortunately, we we are very you know uh, the human brain is still much more powerful given the fact that you can eat a slice of pizza and do very complicated mathematical computations. While if you were trying to do the same thing with, uh, I don't know, GPT-4, you need the power of a village or something, even for inference. Okay. So we are, uh, we are very energy efficient. Um, you know, we use signals that takes milliseconds to transmit, not, you know, nanoseconds, whatever it takes for a, for a GPU. And we still do things faster. Okay. So. There's a completely different world. Even even if we could make an uh, electronic brain, like uh, simulated, I think it would be very different. You know, yeah, biology comes into place. It's still a mystery. But uh, uh, you know, whether we're gonna reach AGI, you, know, you probably hear that. I, I leave that to people who have uh, 
uh, enough money to spend time to to think about it. Okay, so uh, I mean, yeah, in theory it is possible. I hear like Hinton and, and Benzio and uh, what's his name. I think Lacun is on the other side, and Elon Musk that they that they say it's possible for uh, you know you leave a language model start rewriting the code and uh, uh, I don't know, unplugging <laughs> other systems. I don't know why. Uh, I tend not to worry that much about it. I, I worry more about the fact that it's having right now on the job market. That's uh, that's more imminent and more real than or the economy uh, than uh, you know whether the robots will revolt against us. And, and what do you mean by that in terms of it taking away jobs and tasks, or do, or do you think this unlocks? I new think it does. Yes. Yeah. You know, as with everything, you know, it, it happens all the time with, um, uh, you know, with, with the high tech, uh, as technology, um, you know, progresses, uh, the next generation requires less engineers, you know, like you can see about like this, this example says, you know, I don't know how million of employees, you know, Ford has when the car came. And when, you know, compare that with Microsoft, we came later, compare that with Google, compare that with Twitter, and compare that with OpenAI now, <laughs> that, you know, how it's a big chunk of uh, um, of the market they're getting, you know, like their capitalization and the small number of engineers that uh, or scientists uh, that, they, that, that they need, okay? And, uh, yeah, it's pretty clear to me that a lot of jobs now can be done with less people. Um, and even for us, the data scientists, for the moment, if you want, uh, the, the work is becoming a little bit boring, you know, in the sense that uh, <laughs> you have to do what people call like prompt engineering. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I find ways to find more, to make it more interesting. But, um, yeah, it's becoming, uh, it's becoming an issue. I think, I feel like, you know, we, we saw all this tech layoff wave the past two, three years. I think a lot of these jobs will not come back again. Okay. They will, they will need less people for that. Uh, and of course, for, you know, things like customer service or administrative work, uh, all of them will be done with, I mean, it's already pretty obvious you can do things with, with GPT much faster than before. It's, it's a great assistant. So, so two more topics I want to hit before we wrap. The, the one, you know, you think of these uh, models, there's this element of it being a black box. And we touched on it earlier with relational AI, having this concept of a knowledge graph. Like, what is that? How does that work? And like, that kind of gets into the value prop of relational AI to an extent, but we'd love to kind of hear uh, like yeah. how, how the benefits of that that concept. So this the knowledge graphs and language models have a bidirectional relationship. Um, the you know first of all this is very simple definition which I really like about knowledge graph. It's the language that both humans and machines understand. Okay, it's a way of expressing uh, knowledge in a way that you know anyone can read it. And a machine can consume it. Like if I write, you know, C++ code, it's very easy for the machine to understand, but it's not easy to show it to your executive or to your business analyst. Okay. So, so a knowledge graph is, you know, has the right level of information. It's complete and both systems can understand. Um, now, the problem with knowledge graphs has always been is 
you know, it's great, but where can I find one? Like once you have it, uh, uh, it's, it's great. It empowers a business. You see, you know, the, the ROI is huge. Okay. It's like, you know, you are in your house, you, you go to your library, to your room and you tidy it up. You know, once you tidy up and label everything and you know where everything is, then your life, you're very efficient. Okay. Um, but you know, who has the time to do that? So, and that was always a barrier for us. Now, what happens is with language models, you can automate that that very easily. Because in the past, how did you build a language model? So how did you build a knowledge graph? You had somebody going through documents or databases and was trying to find, you know, global entities and relations and how things are, you know, flows and all these things. Now the language model can do that for you with with a human in the loop with supervision. So it, it accelerates that process very quickly. Okay. Now the other thing is once you have a language you know you have a language model, as I said, you need to inject knowledge and you need to teach it stuff. So the way that I've seen it is that let's take some simple examples. Something which is kind of like the holy grail. You want to answer a question. Uh, you know, you go say, well, tell me all the sales from last month where the uh, people bought more than XYZ. And, and that translates to a SQL query. Okay. So in order to do that translation, you know, like from natural language to SQL, for example, if you have a knowledge graph, we have evidence that this can become faster. In some other cases, the knowledge graph, because the knowledge graph can afford really long and complicated reasoning paths. You have your knowledge graph. You can go and mechanically generate, you know, let's call them proofs or reasoning paths. And you can take them and go back to the language model and train it and say, you know, when somebody is asking you this, this is what people call the chain of thought. It can be a pretty lengthy. Okay. So the, the, and of course, it's the hallucination thing where you can think, you know, the knowledge graphs always has the, 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 you know, correct knowledge. And it's very easy to add and remove, you know, knowledge that it's valid or invalid anymore. So that's another part that, you know, helps you uh, keep things in place. So, uh, um, so yes, so knowledge is, uh, language model helps you build a knowledge graph, tidy up your room, tidy up your knowledge. Uh, um, and then the other way, having all that knowledge, you can go and retrain, fine tune, control your language model so that you're getting, um, you know, accurate results and, and better results. Okay. So that's kind of like the synergy between the two. No, that's, that's really interesting. Interesting thing. Uh, evolution there. So as promised, we talked about you had some use cases in your mind of where you think oh, yes. Gen AI is going to like uh, the, the most interesting, viable, disruptive, whatever it may be. So curious to see what what the, some of those are. So let's close with that. I mean, these are things that uh, let's call them historians of technology have uh, have observed over the years. So we know that whenever a new technology comes, uh, people are trying to use it in the obvious way which might not really give them the big um uh, the big multipliers so i think when we when we met i mentioned this example of the electric motor okay so when it was invented uh those days the industry was using the steam engine and the way that they had you know they had a big steam engine in the middle and they had you know uh, mechanical systems that they would transmit the motion to other machines around that in order to produce, I don't know, something, you know, it was an industry. Okay. And now somebody comes and says, 
okay, take this electric motor, which, first of all, is not as powerful as a steam engine by definition, because the, the, the steam engine will produce electricity, something will be lost, and then a motor will use it. And, you know, the steam engine was there for centuries uh, before the, uh, at least a hundred years, I don't know, it was centuries before the electric motors was more optimized. And all of a sudden now you needed to buy electricity to fit that. While for the other one, you had, I don't know, fossil fuel to, to use and you knew where to find it. So, you know, people rejected the electric motor in the beginning. They couldn't know why it was useful until someone said, well, wait a minute. We don't need one electric motor for the whole factory. What if we create, because that's so easy to manufacture, what if we made like a hundred electric motors spread in vertical space? I don't know, you know, so take the whole production and spread it over a bigger space. Okay. And all we need is, you know, an electric generator that can feed, you know, a hundred motors. So the big benefit wasn't by just having one stronger motor. The big benefit was by having, you know, a hundred motors uh, in different levels and uh, making the production, you know, a multi-level and, and expanding it to bigger space. Because the problem with the steam engines is that motion couldn't be transmitted too far away and everything was cramped and, and limited. I think, if I remember, that took about 20 or 30 years okay, to, to figure that out. And kind of like the same thing with, um, you know, let's think about Amazon. Like in the beginning, the e-stores, they were basically take, trying to take a brick-and-mortar store and and run it the same way they were running it on the uh, on before run it like on on the web and and amazon realized that there's other things like you know there's the recommendations is the ab tests is other things that i cannot do in in a brick and mortar store uh the uh, the tailor the personalization that you know brought the big boom of again it took several iterations of failure until you know amazon and Alibaba and others kind of like uh, dominated the market. Think about Snowflake. When Snowflake came and said, we're a cloud database, I said, what do you mean? I can take my database and put it on the cloud. But the thing is, nobody thought about designing a database that it's going to, you know, you can't download Snowflake and run it on your machine. It was designed to be completely cloud-based. Use infinite compute and infinite storage. Okay, so it's it's a very different thing. People were confusing the cloud hosted, which means that I build something that when I, I take something that I build it, thinking that I'm constrained by the memory and the computer of a single machine, and I'm just like running it somewhere else on, on the cloud versus no, I'm building a system that is going to rely on, you know, infinite machines and S3, whatever blob storage, uh, which is infinite and delivered for scratch. So, I'm trying to scratch my head here and say, what is the, yes, yeah, there's the obvious application of Gen AI, which is, you know, use it as a new UI. Okay. So chat, chatbot. Okay. We know about that. But I was thinking, you know, I was trying to make this exercise, like we're looking for these businesses that they, they only exist. They cannot exist without Gen AI. So I think the very, the, the one that we're going to see soon is, um, there's already a legal battle about that, which is going to, you know, blossom and, and give the new thing. I think it's going to change completely the way we're reading. Okay. 
So you might have seen the fights between authors and open AI about, you know, infringement. And uh, I think it's going to end up in a beautiful relationship over there. So right now, there's a problem. Uh, people don't read because they have to go and buy a two, three, four hundred pages book where they only need, you know, to they're only interested in, in four or five pages or even a summary of 20 pages that nobody is providing for them. Okay, they don't know where it is. So what I'm envisioning over here is, you know, think about Random House taking all their books or all the publishers, training a language model. And they're saying, you know, I'm asking a question. And they're basically coming up either with two pages and say, you know, actually this thing, you can find it in that book. And, you know, here's a summary. And these are the three pages. And I can actually take these three pages and put half a page that has all the information that you might need to read these three pages, okay? Because that's another problem. Sometimes you can browse a book and find that chapter, but then as you're trying to read it, you realize that you need to go and visit other. So basically what's going to happen is, you know, you're going to buy pages from books or a summary that was produced based on, you know, 10 pages. So now you will pay, I don't know, 10 pennies or a subscription or something like that. I think it's exactly the same thing that happened with streaming. If you remember the, the legal battles of YouTube and Viacom where people started uploading videos on YouTube and they thought, no, it's mine, it's ours, it's yours. And eventually they came out an agreement that changed completely the way that we listen to music. Uh, Spotify was another thing. Okay, but it took some friction. So we don't buy CDs, 12 songs or 16, whatever they had. You know, we we listen to, you know, one song at a time. Uh, we don't own the songs anymore. You know, we, we just stream them and, and all these things. Um, so I think that's one of the applications. One uh, Now, I have a reservation. But, yeah. Well, as I said, it's like uh, spark notes on steroids almost. It, one question, though, I guess if you're reading for fun, do you, do you get the same pleasure and benefit from that type? Or is that a different use case where you're wanting to sit down and enjoy a book, I guess? That may be a different type of thing versus getting I think the, it can help everyone. Learning. It can help the it can help the bibliophiles, you know, because I often I like I have about 2000 uh, physical books and other 2000 uh, electronic books. I like but I'm always frustrated, you know, audiobooks was another thing that changed the way that we we just know it. But it's always frustrating when, you know, it sometimes it takes like you if the book doesn't stick with you for the first I don't know 20, 30 pages, uh, then you give it up. And it's very likely that in, then if you're a little bit more patient, maybe after page 50 will become more interesting. But how many people give up <laughs> before that? Uh, so as a bibliophile, you know, it's going to help me, um, you know, discover more books. But I think the biggest thing is for people who um, who want to learn something, but they don't want to learn the, the they don't want to read the full book. I read somewhere that they said that. Uh, are we out of time? No, keep going, keep going. Yeah. So there was there was like this theory that you know a hundred years ago when you were writing a book, you had to make it very big because people didn't have to do anything else. So they were buying a book to fill their time, okay? Because they wanted to to spend I don't know a month reading it. Now these days they say that a book shouldn't be more than two hundred pages because. Uh, you know, don't try to fluff around because there's so much information and people don't have the time to, you know, they, they need the essentials and don't want to, 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 to spend too much time on, you know, other irrelevant stuff. 
like the same thing happened with TikTok, you know. Uh, you know, TikTok, again, it was uh, a victor of machine learning over there and recommendations trying to narrow the span, you know, to a few seconds, what you're going to compute, uh, co consume. Of course, you know, it's a great commercial success. I personally don't like it. I don't, you know, I don't let my kids spend time. I, I realize that it's so addictive. Uh, you know, I, I, you know, YouTube sorts, you can spend hours just going one by one. It's, it's uh, dopamine injections. Uh, but we're definitely going to see social networks based completely on Gen AI and videos. Okay. That's kind of like another one. The same thing that we found, you know, we had TikTok. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, we, if you are a founder, you have to start thinking about how can I take a sea of content and serve it, uh, much better. Uh, with uh, with a language model, okay, in in a way that people wouldn't have consumed that before. Yeah, in the the book example you mentioned, I I, I have the same problem. Like I, I do audio books, and I'll kind of like try to save the clips of the things that make sense. And at that point in time, it's like you know you have this light bulb moment, and then you forget about it. But there's a point in time in the future where man, that would be super applicable if I could pull that out of my knowledge base. So it's almost like to your point, getting those points that that are applicable at that point in time, but resurfacing them because they're somewhere in my memory that I can't necessarily always return. <laughs> you know, let me give you a recent example. So, uh, and that's why I think um, this open AI has a big advantage right now over Google. So with all the unfortunate events happening in the, you know, in the Israel-Palestine conflict right now, um, I remember that I had watched a documentary 20 years ago at, at Georgia Tech about the whole history of the, the area, but I couldn't remember the title of it. So I knew that it was a, I remember it was a French production. I remember that it was released somewhere in the 90s because it was right before the Oslo agreement. And uh, I think basically that's what, what, what it was. Okay. I remember it was a documentary. So I was trying to find on Google, I was trying to find on Amazon. I couldn't find it, but I went on OpenAI, and I said, well, I was a documentary. I think it was released early 90s. I know that it was a French production, and, uh, uh, you know, it was, we had the history from the 1900 until 1990. Uh, uh, can you tell me which one it is? Because, you know, how many, there are not really that many. I mean, okay. It should, I thought that someone should have been able to, and it actually found it. It gave me the title in English and in French, and I went to Amazon and I found it. So uh, I find, I think it was remarkable. That's cool. Yeah, and, and just to wrap on the uh, the points you made about the TikTok and everything like that, and just that type of social media, like you wonder to a point, does it get so advanced to where you literally cannot put your phone down? It, it gets you so zoned in with like the dopamine hits. Like, is it engineered to a point where the recommendation of what's coming next? Like it's it's kind of scary to think about, you know, in the future, where it becomes you literally, it's like a drug in essence. Oh yeah, that that is gonna have. I I agree with you. Like if TikTok is uh, is a problem right now, where it's basically trying to find existing content that you're gonna like, um, think about if it knows exactly what you like and you can give it, uh, uh, you know, feedback. Like, you know, so it knows more and more, like you say, what you want. And it, it really, you know, personalizes things for your content. Well, I take it a step further too. Like, w what if 
it's not just random users generating the content. What if it is, uh, you know, a GPT or something like that that's actually yeah, yeah, that's, generating that's the I mean. content? Yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah. So that's wow. That I mean, yeah, I generating and it can you know. Like think about you know like when you were raising a kid where you you say well you know that we have this inherent thing of of going to the taking the path of least resistance and and basically um, things that they're not good for you okay so that's why you have to say no to a kid imagine now that uh, uh, also think about it like society has created like these moral boundaries that. Um, uh, you know, prevent you from doing things that maybe they're in your mind, but you say, you know, that's the, I shouldn't, I shouldn't really take that path because that's, that's immoral. Uh, but what if you are, you know, in your screen as nobody's looking and there's somebody else that says that, Oh, okay. Tell me what you thought. I can actually, you know, create this for you. Um, and people, a lot of people are going to get tempted. And that's like a really bad. Spiral. I mean, I, these are fears before you know AGI taking over and uh, and leaving the matrix. I think these are um, bigger fear, and we do see it in in some you know some applications uh, in the deep fakes and, and things like that. I think uh, it can become. A, and people have said that you know this is this kind of addiction is like drugs. You know, it's the same thing, you know, like uh, the screen addiction. Especially when it takes uh, parts that they are, you know, problematic. So I, I would worry about that. We need some strong uh, uh, resistance in that. So yeah, like I will give you an example. I don't know, for example, okay, like you know, let's take the one of the most horrifying thing, which is like child pornography. Which is I know that by law, even possessing child pornography is a felony. Okay, I don't know. If possessing a deep fake, you know, of child pornography is a felony, so there might be gaps in the in the in the legal system that um, that we have to. And that's the crazy part about it is it's this whole, like to your point, our legal system. It's it's a whole type of paradigm that we haven't even really had to encounter. And how do you build, you know, laws? And it's yeah, it is crazy to think about how that's gonna change how we live, how we work, how we, you know, our, our morality as a species, even to a certain extent. Right. Yeah. So I think the moral issues coming before the, the, you know, whether we're going to lose our jobs or, uh, you know, computers taking over the Terminator control. Yeah. Terminator. Uh, is it Terminator or Matrix? Which one is more scary? Terminator or Matrix? <laughs> oh, I don't know. That's, Maybe I'd say maybe the Matrix, or at least that's the more interesting one to me, at least. What, what about you? Yeah, I think it might, I think it looks like because in the Matrix there wasn't really any mechanical part; it was purely everything was you know there's a computer running, you know, computers were running. The Terminator was mixing the reality with robots, okay? Uh, which I think it's more difficult. I, I, it's an interesting uh, uh, scientific question because. If the machines can take over and, you know, and basically control the universe, why do they need the mechanical part? Why do they need to go out in nature and, you know, and do things? Maybe some of you say because they need to synthesize energy, so they need the mechanical component. Okay. Um, 
so it looks like so it might be the case that evolutionary they will we will not take that into consideration they will try to eliminate their creator but then they will actually face some type of extinction or shrinking because they will be missing the mechanical component to you know uh to get energy and, and all that stuff uh versus the other which is the hard way where i think in the terminator you need to create the robot to fight the humans and then you have the mechanical component that can help you you know because at some point even if you know they could eliminate humans and let's say they had solar panels they would need to manufacture new solar panels you know they would have to go and extract minerals to you know the chips will go bad after some years like you create new chips new stuff so uh <laughs> interesting uh you know uh science fiction stories here yeah i think the scarier thing is not the machines taking over but the humans and bad actors using this stuff in uh negative ways at least for me that that's scarier in my mind uh but yeah uh so this has been one of my i think favorite conversations so far so many interesting topics i really appreciate you coming on to the built right podcast nick but where can people find you where can they find relational ai and learn more about uh either you or the company I think you can find us on the on the web. You know, we are a remote first company even before COVID, and I think we do have an office somewhere in Berkeley. <laughs> I don't, I've been there a couple of times, uh, but our people are all over. I want to say the world. We we the sun never sets or never what's the thing at release in play. I never. Uh, we have people all over the world. Uh, yes, uh, uh, you know, I I'm here in Atlanta. Um, you can go to our website, you know, read our blogs, uh, you know, see about our products. Our product, I think, uh, you know, we have announced a partnership with Snowflake, so people can use it through there. It's a limited availability through there, which is going to become a general one, I think, um, sometime probably this summer. It's coming up, so I, I don't, I don't have a date. Uh, but uh, yeah, so yes, you can. You can find you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm not really big on social media. LinkedIn is probably the only one that I spend some time, not too much. Nice. Well, great, Nick. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for hosting, Matt. Have a good one. Excellent. Thanks for listening to Built Right. If you enjoy the show, give us a follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, and don't forget to leave us a review. For more info on Built Right, visit us at hatchworksbuiltright.com. Do you already have a Gen AI use case in mind for your business, but don't know where to get started? Hatchworks Gen AI Accelerator is exactly what you need. We guide you from ideation to a tangible prototype. Our approach provides a low risk, high value pathway for you to validate and test Gen AI technology on a small scale before committing to full production. We take you through technology and LLM selection, perform data preparation, and then build the actual prototype. And then we do testing and model fine tuning of your prototype. The best part is we get you to this prototype in just two to eight weeks based on the scope of your use case. Check out the link in the show notes or visit hatchworks.com to get started today.